Our rally to support the war was set up months ago. There was no war months ago. Hey, if you don't like America, then you can get out. Remember when you saw that bumper sticker, Honk If You Love America? You smiled, pumped your arm, and honked twice. I do love America. But just remember this. The U.S. of A is the greatest country on the face of the earth, and for that, I will make no apologies. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I am an adjunct instructor of developmental writing at Tallahassee Community College. Joining me, as always, is Nathan Gilmore, who's an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? I'm doing well, Michael. I'm getting ready to go to a meeting for the Literary Journal here at Emmanuel College, so I've been reading student writing all morning of a different sort. He does it all, ladies and gentlemen. He advises, <laughs> he teaches, he records podcasts, he raps, he dances. <laughs> I've never seen Nathan dance. He kills people for money. <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, yeah, 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 Mad Dog, yes. Yeah, that you've seen. Yeah, what? <laughs> Mad Dog Gilmore the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> also joining us is David Grubbs, who's a graduate instructor of English at uh, University of Georgia. David, whose office are you in today? I am in my wife's office, but soon, soon, hopefully soon, I will actually be able to be in my own office with my old office door. I'm so happy. What a novelty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not well, your own it, office. You're going to have to share it with somebody, right? Um, yeah, but it's going to be uh the the same fellow that I've been that uh, that I've been sharing it with um for the for the past little bit and and that's that's fine. So. I share my office with six other people, in case anyone is wondering. Uh, that, the, the joys of being that's, an adjunct. Now that's yeah. still Lyrum, right, David? Uh, no, actually, uh, Lyrum is, uh, I believe, back in Ohio. Oh, okay. Um, I thought he was Ohio? in Iowa. Iowa? They're I always get those. State. I get them confused. One of those I, states with only one continent. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, uh, James James Gregory, who's uh, basically the the other medievalist. Oh, I love James. Yeah, yeah. Though he does he does medieval Welsh, and I do old English. So, and us occupying the same office is is 
kind of an irony if you think about it historically, but anyway. Also, I bet you can't move in that office without choking on somebody's nerdery. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, is that the noun? Nerditude? Is that better? Nerditude. <laughs> well, I, I like I like geek better than nerd. I associate nerd with the maths and the sciences. Anyone but. who hasn't seen David doesn't know that he has uh, giant 1950s-style glasses held together by tape. <laughs> That's not true. I think there, there are some pretty sexy wire rims, personally. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our normal housekeeping. Did we get, did we get any uh, listener feedback? Actually, Michael, I, I got some feedback back in early January that I forgot to mention last week, but it's such a fun story that I, I really need to put it on the air. Uh, I got an email from one Matthew Stevenson. Uh, he said that he had actually stumbled upon our podcast on iTunes. Thank you to all of us who have been giving us five-star ratings. Uh, and he heard my name, didn't think anything of it. But then he noticed that I kept mentioning Indiana whenever we recorded. So he started thinking, you know, back in my hometown, there was a Gilmore family. Hmm. And as it turns out, not only had Matthew Stevenson been in the same marching band that I had been in, <laughs> with my little brother Ryan, uh, but he also worked at the same public library I had worked in as a high schooler. Uh, so it was one of those fun connections. Uh, I had never heard of him actually until he emailed me, but uh, it turns out that we share a great deal in common. And Matthew, keep listening, comment on the blog, and thanks for coming along. That's good. That's good times. Yeah, Christian Humanist Podcast, bringing old friends together. And if that's you, right. Uh, if, if you know any of us from high school, you can uh, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can just keep it to yourself. How about that? Or kind, <laughs> kindly forget that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're talking about nationalism today. Um which is a, a pretty heavy topic I think we're all uh, a little bit excited about. But let's start at the most logical place to start, uh which is near the beginning. Um Nathan, what does nationalism look like in the ancient pagan world? I know that in most cases we're talking about tribes rather than nations, but uh, how does ancient tribalism compare to modern nationalism, and, and when does the switch get thrown from one to the other? Well, first thing I want to say is that, and this is something that I should have learned much younger, but I only really came to realize in the last few years, uh, that only the Romans ever talked about themselves as having tribes. Uh, it is a Latin word. Uh, you know, it is a subdivision within the Roman Republic, and that's why they have the office of tribune. Uh, it's one of those words that when people who were descended from the Romans intellectually in some way or another encountered other people groups, they would name their subdivisions as tribes. Uh, but it's actually a word that is native to Rome rather than anywhere else. So it's one of those things where, you know, uh, I, 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 I feel a bit stupid admitting this, but I honestly thought for several years about, you know, for instance, American Indians thinking about themselves as having tribes, sub-Saharan African groups as having tribes, so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's really an import word. Hmm. Anyway, that little bit of trivia aside, uh, you know, in the ancient world, one of the big changes of imagination that happens between then and now is how you imagine geography. Uh, and I actually picked this up from uh, William T. Kavanaugh's book, Theopolitical Imagination. Uh, but I've also run into it now because I ran down some of his cross-references in some works of historical theory. But 
the idea of a national border is really an invention of the last 500 years or so. Uh, in the ancient world, and to a large extent in most of the medieval period, you had cities which were sort of centers of influence. And then the farmers and the peasants in the surrounding area would look to that city for protection uh, or that manor or that castle or whatever. Uh, but then there were distinct areas or indistinct areas really called frontiers, uh, which would have been basically no man's land. And this is where outlaws would have lived. This is where, you know, uh, something like the Robin Hood stories probably arose. And it really was in the Tudor period of English history when the common lands were claimed by the throne that the shift to a strong, unified national border comes to well, I mean, comes to be the geographic imagination of Europe. Now, as far as, you know, the what did they think about, we've talked I've talked about what they didn't think about. Uh, they did think about themselves as being a part of multiple spheres. So in other words, someone from Athens uh, would have thought of himself as an Athenian, certainly, would have thought of himself probably as a Greek because of linguistic ties. And then in certain cases, like the Stoics, uh, which is a fairly advanced uh, form of philosophy, they probably would have started thinking of themselves as part of an international human race. But, you know, as far as where their loyalties lay, uh, usually the city would trump the larger linguistic body. Now, that's mainly in the Western world. Now, in the ancient East, in Persia and Babylon, places like that, you definitely have empires, but instead of Again, the modern conception of a national border that sort of defines where Egypt would stop and Assyria would begin. Instead of that, you really have a tributary system where if you pay taxes to the imperial capital, then you are part of the empire. And if you don't pay taxes to the imperial empire, no, to the imperial capital, then you're not part of the empire. And in fact, uh, whenever in ancient literature you read about a city rebelling against the imperial capital, whether that be Babylon or Nineveh or Persepolis or whatever, it usually means that when the tax collectors came around, the king of the city said, we're not going to pay you anymore. Go back to your king and tell you, tell him we're not, no longer paying tribute. Uh, David, do you have anything to add to that? Because, I mean, my expertise is mainly Middle Eastern and, you know, Mediterranean. Is there anything that we know from the ancient north of Europe? Uh, well, we don't know a heck of a whole lot about the ancient north of Europe, uh, honestly. Okay. Um, it, whatever accounts of that that we've got are are medieval accounts or are uh, things that Romans wrote based on uh, – Greeks and Romans wrote based half on their own conjecture and then half on whatever they might happen to understand from what they were told. Uh so you know, I, I I can I can bring that back up again, um, maybe a little later on when we get into the Middle Ages, but oh, I did okay, want to, okay. but I did want to say one thing um, about the about the geography of it. Um, I think Egypt might pose uh, might be a bit of an ex expansion of the notion, particularly uh, with the fact of the Nile. Okay. And then the the Nile create the Nile creating this kind of, this I think readier exchange of 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 continuity of identity with the the settlements along it. Uh huh. 
So, you know, I, I think that would be, you know, one, one bit of geographical, you know, one, one, one kind of geographical fact that might expand the idea of, of, of political identity beyond the imagined imperial power and then sort of the more local cities. Anyway. I want to get back to okay. the uh, multiple spheres of identity, Nathan. That's not too different from how things work now, am I right? I mean, certainly um, you, you, you would ahead, see yourself. I, I know you see yourself as an Indianian. It, mm-hmm. uh, a Hoosier, a Hoosier, yeah. sir. Uh, yes. How, whatever, whatever <laughs> fake word you want to use. Uh, <laughs> and you see yourself as a U.S. citizen, and, and I, I believe you're conscientious enough to think of yourself as a global citizen as well. Your primary loyalty might not lie in your city, but you've no doubt been in the South long enough to recognize that many people in the South have a primary loyalty not to the United States, but to their individual state or more uh, broadly to their region. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we, we still have uh, multiple spheres. I don't spheres. know about that. I, I think we have multiple spheres, but I mean, look around the next time the 4th of July comes around. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that in the modern nation-state system, we've definitely got a priority of the nation-state over the local. Uh, and in fact, I mean, this is one of those rifts that politicians use. I mean, often they use it in bad faith. I'll go ahead and say that so I don't sound too naive. Uh, but, you know, when they are trying to emphasize the dire importance of this or that, you know, they'll say, you know, this isn't a left or right issue. This is an American issue. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the difference there is that you know, in the ancient Near Eastern empires, and David, you're right that, I mean, the Egyptian city-states have that linguistic tie and that political tie that is stronger than, say, the Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, for instance, when Jerusalem was a province of Persia, you know, they thought of themselves as an as a political unit called Yehud first, and then mm-hmm. part of the Persian Empire secondarily. Right. So Whereas it's a re- now... You know, people would, at least in my experience, you know, especially on the big, you know, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, Fourth of July uh, trio of holidays, they definitely think of themselves as Americans first and foremost. I think it's certainly getting, I think it's certainly getting more and more that way. I think there are still pockets that resist that notion. Uh, But, I mean, obviously things have changed in the last a hundred years on that. I was reading on Martin Luther King day that Mm -hmm. uh, Mississippi, for example, didn't ratify Martin Luther King day for some time and instead celebrated something called Jackson Lee day, you know, celebrating Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. That that to me is an example of, of a place valuing the the local over the, uh, the national. Okay. All right. Or you think of the, um, Oh, I don't know. The uh, kind of, I don't want to say lunatic fringe, but the, the fringes of conservatism <laughs> where it's really about the, the situation immediately surrounding you. It's, it's about localism far more than it's about nationalism. I think, mm-hmm. I think there are pockets, more or less, I, I don't know how large those pockets are or how many of them are, there are, but I think there are pockets that would still far rather identify with um, the local than with the national. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, you know, I, th- I think that may be something we need to get into a bit later on. But I, I, I think I think what we're what we're actually dealing with is not that 
that now we only have an idea of a national, but what order what order t- of the priorities tends oh, to be um, right, right. T- tends to be and there. then also, you know, I, I realize that there are the sort of Richard Weaver conservatives out there. I don't think there's that many of us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then I, I would also say that in a lot of places, especially in the South, although certainly in, in the Midwest too, uh, part of localism has transformed within our lifetimes, the three of us, mm-hmm. so that, you know, it's not that I am a Hoosier and therefore, you know, I am ontologically different from a New Englander, but mm. it's more a sense of I am a Hoosier and therefore I am a real American, unlike those people in California. Oh, that's true. That's definitely true. I tend to agree with the former statement <laughs> rather than the latter one. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to claim the Hoosiers, folks. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think geography really matters. I'll claim uh-huh. the Hoosiers. I'll claim the Hoosiers. I, I knew who they were as a child because my parents, my parents had actually visited Indiana several times and brought me back a T-shirt. There so, you go. Plus, there's that movie. Yeah, but oh, yeah. I never saw it. Anyway, that, meaning Indiana, is the pagan world. Uh, Do things look any different for the ancient Hebrews, David? I mean, obviously, the the Hebrews see themselves as chosen by God as a a nation Mm -hmm. set apart from the rest of them, but does that attitude actually set them apart? Um, I think it does, and there there is a a particular strain of... uh, nation theory um you know the, the the people who are theorizing what a nation is and how they function and all that kind of thing there there's a few different strains of it and there is one strain who sees uh the ancient hebrews as particularly important uh, a fellow by the name of adrian hastings uh wrote a book called the construction of nationhood in which he takes the ancient jews as the model of of a nation that uh that what we have in uh, what what we see in ancient Israel is this people group who has a conception of themselves translocally as you know we are the people of Israel but also um with an with an idea of, of a connection between themselves as a as an ethne uh, as a gins as a as a, a people of descent a link between them and a specific geographical region with a specific center, uh, Jerusalem, and focused also on the worship of of this one God who has given them, uh, who has made a covenant with them, and has uh, the the stipulations of that covenant laid out. And so, um, but particularly the idea of uh, this, you know, sort of his, uh, an origin of descent, um, d. S C E N T, not I S S E N T. Um, an origin, yeah, an origin of descent, um, but also of uh, the link to this this homeland. Um, is is seen as a as a template that later on, um, and he and he would say in the Middle Ages, uh, ancient Israel is seen as a template for, uh, for nations. Uh, and and Hastings says uh, in the in the Middle Ages is when uh, this uh, this this kind of look back at Israel through the through the lens of Christianity um, 
kind of incorporates those ideas of of an elect people in a in in a homeland of promise pursuing a a national destiny that those those ideas get picked up and of course by the um american puritans as well in a major major way right well right. and the, the the phrase that i that that you know gets repeated uh uh, in well, in the studies of Genesis that I've read, is land is in the context of, of God's promise to Abraham, is land, seed, and blessing. Yes. And I I I, th I think that when if if we look at the idea of what a nation is today, you can still see vestiges of that template, and even the way um, you know uh, the, the way America is talked about, not only by its founders, but by a lot of politicians still. Of 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 land, seed, and blessing, but right, whether or right. not that's a good thing to do. <laughs> a city on a and hill. Da and David, I can definitely see that pattern working out in uh, Jeffrey Monmouth's uh, history of the kings of England. Is that the name of his book? Yes. Uh, or I, Britain, know, where... Britain, Britain, actually. He's he's going. Oh, Britain, ahead you're and... right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. He's already and, expanding you know, it out. Right where you know he starts out the narrative with Brutus the grandson of Aeneas, you know, coming to this island and he finds that it's a rich and fertile land, but it's occupied by giants. Does this sound familiar, anyone? Oh, yes. Uh, and they, <laughs> and, you know, as they are settling it, you know, they have to drive out the giants so that they can, you know, uh, set up a righteous kingdom that will be ripe for the coming of Christ and all that groovy stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see that pattern working out in that medieval historiography. Well, even the idea of of an exodus and a migration, um, you see it in the Aeneid, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Jeffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, you, you, you've mentioned that. Uh, in Bede's uh, History of the English, you see uh, his, him, him talking that, about that's the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, those two get crossed <laughs> pretty pretty regularly. But you know the the idea of a migration from another place to this land of of of, of promised destiny. Um, yeah, it, it's it's an important pattern that picks that gets picked up. And but I'm even done. in the diaspora, uh, you know, after the Jerusalem Temple has been destroyed, there are gigantic passages of both of the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, which are you know sort of the the great rabbinical books of the first few centuries of rabbinical Judaism that are dedicated to regulating the practice of worship at the Jerusalem temple, even though it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that sense of the central place is definitely there in that conception. Right. Nathan, it seems to me that when it, we're talking about nationalism, as with so many other things, uh, Jesus thrown everything off balance, as uh, <laughs> Flannery O'Connor says. Uh, in particular, yes. the, the New Wanna. Testament seems to me to set up a system in which Christians are supposed to identify less with their nations or their, or their uh, cities or anything else than with the overarching and transnational, transcendent kingdom of God. Am I uh, misreading that? What's Jesus's attitude toward nationalism? Well, first of all, I mean, almost all of Jesus's teachings on nationalism are directed at the Jews. Uh, yeah. And that's important to note because, you know, when people say, well, you know, Jesus seemed to be all right with soldiers because he was always speaking kindly to centurions. Uh, remember that, you know, in that historical moment, there's no such thing as a 
soldier considered neutrally. Uh, he was speaking to the enemy, looking at the occupying power, the foreigner, the goyim, and saying, look, there's not even this kind of faithfulness among Israel. All right. So, I mean, that is uh, not only a commentary on, you know, the faithlessness that he sees around him, but it's a great slap in the face because the content of their faith is that God is going to get rid of that sucker right there that Jesus just praised. Right. Uh, so, you know, this idea of Israel as the promised land uh, is something that rises to a fever pitch in that first century of the Christian era. Uh, you have a what what historians call a spiral of violence that happens through the lifetime of Jesus, through the career of Paul, and sort of culminates uh, in the year A.D. 66 when finally uh, the emperor of Rome uh, decides to send an army to Jerusalem to level it. He says, basically, you know, these Jews are just entirely too nationalistic. We're never going to be able to keep them under control. Uh, that area is too strategic for its connection with Egypt and for its connection with uh, the Parthian Empire. We're going to have to level it and start over. Uh, so, you know, when Jesus, you know, talks about uh, nations and so on, uh, I mean, he's almost always critiquing that very strong sense of Jewish nationalism that says we have to drive out all of the foreigners in order to make ourselves the lords of this land. Mm. Now, when you get over into the rest of the New Testament, especially in Paul, uh, I want to focus, I mean, on one particular verse. That's usually not my style, but I'm going to do it now just because it's such a rich verse. But it's Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version here. Uh, but our citizenship is in heaven, mm. and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a ton of stuff going on there that a little bit of Greek and a little bit of history will illuminate. Uh, first of all, that word uh, polyteuma, uh, which gets translated quite nicely as citizenship, uh, is the characteristic that makes an animal a human being, according to Aristotle. All right, so... He is saying our very manhood, our humanity, our personhood uh, is in heaven, all right, as opposed to in Athens or in, you know, Philippi, since this is the letter of the Philippians, uh, or in Rome, importantly. And moreover, when he goes on to say that uh, we look for a Savior uh, who is Jesus Christ, uh, that is a title that the emperor of Rome would have claimed for himself. When Rome conquered a territory, the announcement would go out to the people, uh, Caesar is now your savior. And the idea was not that, C that Caesar would make them go to heaven when they die. Uh, <laughs> that was the job of the gods. But rather it was that Caesar was saving them from the barbarism and the chaos uh, that characterized their lives under those pagan regimes. All right. The other word that's going on there in the Greek... Uh, is that word Lord. Again, that would have been a title that Caesar claimed for himself. So when Paul writes to these Christians in Philippi and says that your citizenship, your polis membership uh, is in heaven, that means implicitly that it is not with Rome. When Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, and your Savior implicitly that means that Caesar is not. So in a lot of ways, you know, that early Christian tradition uh, was a call for people to reimagine what their nation was. And, you know, one of the 
strong, strongly significant conflicts that persist through the New Testament is between Jews and Gentiles. You know, today we think of that as, okay, you know, this is kind of a silly, you know, the Germans on one side of the town and the Polish on the other side of the town. But remember that this was a central conflict about, are we Israel in diaspora? The answer was generally yes. The question that naturally followed from that is, who is included in that Israel in, di- in diaspora? Paul's answer, unequivocal answer is, all those who are faithful to Jesus the Messiah. Uh, bloodline doesn't matter anymore. Family history doesn't matter anymore. What matters is faithfulness to Jesus the Messiah. Everything else is, as Paul says, scubalon. And if you've never seen that word, go ask a first-year Greek student. He'll tell you exactly what it is. It is uh, translated too mildly in the uh, in the New Testament, typically. It's a word that you'd get in trouble at, uh, at a manual for saying in class, I suspect. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's times like this that I'm really glad we have a medievalist on staff, because I have no idea what happens with nationalism in the Middle Ages, and I suspect many or most of our listeners don't either. Uh, David, you've already talked about it a little bit, but can you give us a 25-second primer on medieval nationalism? 25 seconds? I'm just, I'm just teasing you. Uh, talk, talk as long as you need to about medieval nationalism, and if you've got, if you've got 25 <laughs> more seconds, tell us what happens in the Renaissance. Oh, okay. Well, That's I not mean, a big I, question. I may, I may pass the buck when I get to the Renaissance, but I can get it through the Middle Ages at least. Um, the Dark Ages. I'm going to start off with... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm actually going to – yeah, the Dark Ages. I, I'm going to start off with uh, where, where Nathan left off and the, the the Christian sense that they were a nation. And you know this, this does carry through the patristics. Um, probably I think the, the best example of that, um, well, is Augustine's City of God where he's he, – you know, he, he's basically laying out there are two kinds of people in the world. <laughs> the citizens of the city of heaven and the citizens of the city of earth. Them that do and them that don't. Yeah. And I guess I don't get the reference. Um, but in uh, early Christian apologetics, very often it was framed in these kinds of uh, your religion is also your nation terms. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea uh, would talk about Christians as a as a as a nation with a history and a lineage, uh, as opposed to um, both Greeks and uh, also to Jews. Interestingly enough, um, so that was that was a, a a manner of speaking that was common, and we see it in uh, Bede, the old English writer, in his ecclesiastical history. He tells the story of the first martyr of the British Isles who converts. And then uh, is brought before a judge and is asked, what is your family and your race? And his answer is, I'm a Christian, and I worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, and you worship devils. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, the judge. Not, not Those exactly were the days, the weren't they? Of, yeah, not exactly the patron saint of the emergence. <laughs> no, 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 no. He was the pa- patron saint of, uh, I'm going to answer the question you should have asked. <laughs> it's true. Uh, anyway, th- this is, this is a, 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 a view that was in Christendom that was, that was getting passed on. It was uh, perpetuated by especially the apologetic tradition, which was also um, 
at the forefront of evangelism because you know as as the church is having to deal with unconverted people or newly converted people they're having to explain why uh this this new allegiance is di- is different and better than the old one you know uh but in terms of medieval nations uh we're going to have to delve we're going to have to leave the christian and go to the pre-christian and that you know that ancient northern europe that you were alluding to earlier oh, michael uh, we don't know a heck of a lot about it, um, but there are some kind of outlines of things that that's, that some historians believe can be assembled into something like a st- something like a story. We're not nearly uh, scholars aren't nearly as excited about that kind of history writing as they were pre World War II, <laughs> but uh, it's it's still something they try to do. Um, a, a fellow by the name of Herwig Wolfram, uh, a German, unsurprisingly, wrote a history of the Goths in which he lays out this theory of what he calls ethnogenesis, which is basically how does a group that didn't see as it's itself before as a people group, how did they get that sense of people group? And unsurprisingly enough, he says, well, they see they they trace this sense of of common ethnicity to a legend of common descent, often a story of a migration from one place to another place, and a a relationship with a new god or a new relationship with a previous god. Um, but at the core of this identity is this regal dynasty, this kings or chiefs who are seen as the lineage bearers. Um, so if you look at the Goths, when when Wolfram looks at the Goths, he says that what defines a Goth is actually that they're following the king of the Goths, who's the big Goth. And your allegiance to him includes you in his family and in the story of his family, which is the wider nation. Um, and that idea lies behind some of the some of the notions of nationhood that the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes showed up in Britain. Um, you know, in their it, they, what they had in their heads about what they were. These these ideas of uh, stories of migration and regnal dynasties and associations with uh, with kings, you know, associating with them with kings being their sense of nationhood. Uh, a fellow by the name of Patrick Wormald. Uh, says that Bede changed all that, and he did it with a pun. Uh, so the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes arrive in England, and then the Pope hears about them, Gregory the Great, and uh, he, when he discovers, the story is told, when he discovers these uh, slave boys taken from, from England, and he asks, well, where are they from? And, and he's told, well, they're Angles. And he says, well, are they called angels, for they shall praise their creator with the angels in heaven. So uh, in that moment, uh, Wormald says, uh, Gregory changed the disparate tribes of Anglo-Saxons and Geats into this one people group called the the, the Angles, the English. And uh, anyway, his his theory is that this this kind of spiritual Christ, spiritual unity in the eyes of the Christian God 
is what first put the notion of a unified Englishness into the English imagination. Now, later on, it, it, it was turned to political uses, but uh, Wormald argues that it started with Bede and Gregory's pun. Oh, let's see. Where do we go from there? Um, I've talked about uh, people in the Middle Ages using Old English or Old Testament polity as kind of a model. Um, we also see, uh, for, uh, particularly in the Plantagenet line, uh, as they as as they have the the Plantagenet kings of England, as they continue to try to exert their claims on. French territory, you see this gradual hardening of an English identity in opposition to a French identity, which kind of culminates when Henry V starts starts using English exclusively as the official language of the government in his speeches, in his personal correspondence, and especially in the chancery records. So that's another thing that makes this national identity in the Middle Ages too is the the sense of opposition to another people. And very often that ends up getting fixed on language. So yeah. Uh from from there to the Renaissance. Um you have anything to say about that, Nathan? In fact, I do. You know what the Plantagenets start, the Tudors certainly pick up and run with it. Uh, you know, there's a strong sense, especially in the wake of Protestant Catholic struggles, that in the reign of Elizabeth, one of her grand intellectual and political projects is to inculcate a sense that under her, the monarch of England, uh, that there is in fact a unified English identity that transcends uh, Protestant and Catholic. Uh, and then, you know, in the reign of James I, since he's James I of England and James VI of Scotland, he expands that so that what is, if we're honest, an English empire that, it, that spans the entire British island uh, becomes, in the official royal rhetoric, Great Britain, uh, one unified people consisting not only of the English, but also of the Scots and the Welsh and the Cornish. All right. Um, and, you know, on the continent, you know, similar things are happening uh, with the rise of the great kings of France. Obviously, that culminates not in the Renaissance, but in the, you know, in the age of Louis XIV. Uh, it doesn't last long, of course, and we'll get to that in, in later questions. Uh, <laughs> but there is this sense that, you know, with the decline of the internationalist imagination of the church. Mm there is a corresponding rise of the nationalist imagination of the kings and the queens. Uh, so that, you know, as one, as one, you know, becomes less, the other becomes greater. The, you say that a decline of the internationalist uh, notion of the church. I, I know Henry VIII kind of set up, you know, he's, he's got the church of England and then you see these various other national churches spring up. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know that, I don't know that 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 idea of a national church was necessarily a motivating force of Protestantism. Would you say? Um, if, uh, not necessarily. I, I I would I have more in mind figures like Cardinal Richelieu of Paris, uh, who okay. I mean not only took political authority very very seriously and invested it in Paris, 
mm-hmm. but also, I mean, made moves theologically that, you know, to a great extent set himself up as a peer of Rome rather than a subject of Rome. Okay. Cause I, cause I would argue that someone like Calvin, uh, was, was basically saying that, uh, was trying to argue that, you know, actually the Roman, the Roman church was too anchored to a geographical and historical particularity that they were trying to take this, this specific tradition and say, yeah, that's the church for all time and in all places. Um, yeah, I can see that. I, but I also see that, you know, the, in the wake of the 30 years war, it turns out towards the end of that conflict, not necessarily to be a Protestant versus Catholic thing so much as a Habsburg versus Cardinal Richelieu versus the English versus so on and so forth, you know, so that national identities really do emerge out of that conflict in a way that they weren't in place, for instance, in the 14th century when, you know, as you said, you know, there, there's definitely a Rome centeredness to the church, you know, their money is flowing that direction and so on and so forth. But there's also a sense that, you know, the kings of England and France and, you know, the princes of the Holy Roman Empire were in some senses subject to the authority of the church in a way that they're not after the Thirty Years' War. Okay. I can see, I can see that. Well, we have at last entered the modern world. Uh, Nathan, <laughs> I've heard you say uh, that nationalism was the most important force in the 20th century. I think it's really hard to argue with that, um, with the Nazis making nationalistic hay for a decade or two, and then the big divide between the communist USSR and the democratic United States. But how did we get there? What, what conditions in the 18th and 19th centuries led up to the kind of rabid nationalism of the 20th century? All right. Well, you know, like I said, I mean, I think that it gets its roots to a large extent. Obviously, this isn't the exclusive cause, uh, but the Thirty Years' War gets narrated, uh, for better or for worse. You know, William T. Cavanaugh in the book that I mentioned earlier, Theopolitical Imagination, makes a fairly compelling cause that it was a bad development in a lot of ways. But they start to imagine the church and the church as the Calvinists and the Lutherans and the Anglicans and the Catholic as sort of irrational warring forces uh, and in the wake of that sort of bad press you know the kings of France, of England, of Spain really do rise up and take on a prominence that they hadn't enjoyed uh, in what we call the, the Middle Ages and of course what they would have called right now uh, but you know this <laughs> that when I <laughs> I just can't resist throwing that one in. Anyway, uh, you know, as the 17, as the 18th century progresses, uh, of course, you get the rise of Enlightenment philosophers. Uh, you get the rise of ideas that uh, the people in a bounded location, uh, something that you can draw on a map, uh, should themselves constitute a political unit. And you have variations on that. You know, you have the sort of Hobbesian and to a great extent, the, the uh, Kantian ideas that, you know, a strong, absolute ruler should be controlling those political units. And then, of course, you get the Lockean idea uh, that it should be somehow a more Republican situation where the people determine their own governance. But at any rate, the basic agreement that you get is that the people in a place uh, should be considered as a political unit. 
and the people born there, which of course is the, you know, the Latin root word of, uh, nation, uh, are themselves understandable as bound together in important philosophical ways. Now, as the 19th century progresses, you know, you get the great wars of nationalism. You have the rise of Napoleon and the sense of, you know, the sense of sort of Frenchness uh, really rises. In the wake of that, you get the rise of Prussia uh, and, you know, the strong sense of German identity. You have Italy unifying, uh, threatening to go communist. But then, you know, even when the communism goes away. Uh, you know, they still retain the sense that that really wasn't there again in the Middle Ages that what, you know, Venice and Florence and Naples and Rome all have to get in common is more important than what keeps them apart. All right. Uh, and so, you know, when you get on, on into the sort of imperial age, when the more powerful European nations start expanding into uh, South American uh, and sub-Saharan African, and well, and Saharan African, and Asian territories, uh, you know, what you get is this growing sense, uh, certainly spurred on by the development of modern anthropology, uh, modern history, things like that, uh, that a person's identity was first and foremost tied to that place of birth. Uh, now, when you get into, you know, what you mentioned earlier, Michael, uh, the 20th century is a strange mix of nationalism on one hand and ideology on the other. And I mean, it's obviously very, very hard to sort out. Go and, ahead. And part of that is that the two superpowers after World War II both considered themselves nations built primarily on an idea. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Although the Russians, that was more a function of those at the top than the people themselves. They still oh, thought sure, of themselves yeah. as Russians. Before well, and Russia has always had a very strong national identity. Oh, sure, mm -hmm. sure. But, you know, for instance, you know, at, at towards the end of the Cold War, uh, the, the so-called Cold War, I should say, you know, those who live in Vietnam, Korea, and Afghanistan would call it differently, I think. Uh, you know, when you've got, you know, Vietnam, which is allegedly an ideologically driven political unit, expels the United States, which is allegedly an ideologically driven political unit, the very next thing they do is they wage a brutal and bloody war against the Chinese, who are supposed to be their ideological allies. So, I mean, it, it's definitely, you know, the 20th century, uh, I'm no 20th century historian, I don't think that's any surprise to anyone who listens, uh, but I mean, what I always have to caution myself against is leaning too hard in the direction of nationalism or in, this, in the direction of ideology when I'm trying to make sense of it. Uh, as, David, I'm, I'm rambling now, so I mean, what, what would you have to add to that? As, as explanatory principles, you mean? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a whole lot to add to it. I, I, I think, you know, the, the, the best thing to do is, is to say, um, as, as I believe, you know, has been said in the discussion so far, that nationalism is is a factor it's a powerful factor but political ideology is also a powerful factor there are lots of other ones and so just kind of saying hey you know what the big evil demon of the 20 of the 20th century was it was patriotism well, that's 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 too easy well and it's also too easy to combine patriotism and nationalism 
at the right. very least that those two things are on a spectrum and they may be totally different. Mm-hmm. Right. C.S. And Lewis also certainly the, thinks they're different. Right, well, but, and there are also times when patriotism or nationalism becomes ideology, as in the case of National Socialism. Which, which right. is my, my point about the 20th century is the reason nationalism is so important is that it had gotten so bound up in, in ideology and also in, in these long-held myths about the, the country. I mean, less long for the Soviet Union, although it fed off of uh, former Russian nationalism. Right. I mean, certainly, certainly Nazism doesn't spring out of nowhere. It's not a newly invented ideology. It draws very heavily on um, the German self-conception. Mm-hmm. And and certainly the way the United States behaved in the second half of the 20th century, and to some extent still behaves, is built on this, as early as you can possibly get, American conception of America as the city on the hill, the errand in the wilderness, manifest destiny. We're, you know, we're, we're God's new country. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but one point that I would emphasize is that, you know, in the wake of folks like John Locke and Voltaire, the church really does become a privatized thing in the 19th and especially the 20th centuries. And of course, you know, the, and this is a little bit too easy. So David be prepared to counter with strong (laughs) blows, but you know, the picture that always sticks in my mind is, you know, the, the bomber plane flying the atomic bomb headed for Nagasaki, which is the city in Japan with the most Roman Catholics in it. And while they're on that plane, there's a Roman Catholic priest on the plane giving the mass to the Roman Catholic American pilots. Yeah. And, you know, you think about that and you compare that to, you know, the 11th, 12th centuries where, you know, if a war got out of hand, the Pope could issue an interdict and, you know, the kings would basically snap to and say, okay, we're going to stop. Or, you know, uh, the example that Neil Postman so loves to throw into his books, you know, the fact that in the, oh, and I'm going to get the century wrong, but I think the 13th century, the Pope issues a bull that says that anyone who uses a crossbow in combat will be excommunicated. Yeah. You know, I mean, that sort of thing. Is, huh? <laughs> Fair game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that sort of mentality just is not present in most political calculations in the 20th, in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. Much to oh, the chagrin of the new atheists, I'm sure, who are always claiming that religion starts all these wars. It sounds like religion may have been a force for good in some of them. But, but, go, but yeah, but go well, ahead, David. Yeah. I do want you to counter that because I, that's my wannabe Anabaptist speaking. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, well, and, and you even had during the Middle Ages people like Richard the Lionheart who told the Pope to go stuff his crossbow ban and used yeah, it in combat yeah. anyway and then died getting hit in the face with a crossbow. So, yeah, yeah, a crossbow bolt takes him (laughs) in the eye, and the last thing he thinks is irony. I thought he Um, came back and uh, married Robin Hood's uh, Maid Marian. Yeah, that's in the uh, the the uh, (laughs) that's the that's the theriomorphic Disney version there, Michael. Oh, I was thinking of uh, the Kevin Kevin Costner. Costner. Oh, Kevin Costner. (laughs) You know what? Kevin Costner is actually the last Rob. No, the last Robin Hood I think of is the Russell Crowe one. Um. But yeah, no. I, I usually think of the animal one first, and then I think of Errol Flynn. But yeah, <laughs> um, I don't know. I I don't want to. I don't want to push back too much on on that. Actually, uh, Nathan, um, 
except to say that you know that that was an ugly reality in in wars that I don't think the church has ever fully closed its eyes to. Right, but right. The the only the only thing. Oh yeah, that that's definitely yeah. true. And you know, a couple a couple figures I'll bring up just briefly is you know first of all, uh, the current pope Pope Benedict who uh, looks like has, Palpatine. He does. He does. He will complete your training. <laughs> but, uh, he has said publicly that he believes in just war theory as formulated by Augustine and Aquinas, but that any war that uses automatic weapons is by definition not a just war. Oh, good for him. It's not a fair fight. Uh, and, and well, no, it's because, you know, an automatic weapon by definition does not distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. Are you ta- you're, t- you're not talking about machine guns. You're talking about drones. No, I'm talking about machine guns and I'm talking about aerial bombing and I'm talking about drones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. About all the other it. figure and, you know, I've, I've talked about him already i think this episode is richard weaver who's a you know an american catholic conservative did most of his writing in the 1950s he said that you know the liberal pacifists are you know completely naive to think that war is anything but inevitable among humankind and we ought to celebrate it uh and we ought to have wars and you know we shouldn't look down on people who have wars and then he turns right around and says, but this aerial bombing and machine gun crap has got to stop. If you're going to have a war, get out your swords and your shields. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's just going to get worse and worse. I, I mean, there's no way it's stopping. It's not yeah. going to get any better. <laughs> I, Which I mean, incidentally, I, David, when I read that, that's when I realized that I, I can indeed believe in just war. Richard yeah. Weaver style. Just just not any just war that's ever going to happen again. Well, Richard right, Weaver... Right. Richard Weaver can only say that because he's ignoring um, all of the pre-modern weapons of, rest, of mass destruction, including, including yeah, Greek, yeah. Greek, Greek fire and uh, the Archimedes uh, parabolic mirrors that could uh, incinerate navies at a distance. Which the Mythbusters and... have proven impossible about 45 times. Really? <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing as the Archimedean death ray. Yeah, I disagree. Cause President I Obama say... was on there this year and he helped prove it wrong. With a gang well, of children, I set myself on fire once with a mirror, so so I'm going to believe Archimedes. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that, and once again, David, we're we're joining hands across the aisle here. I'll I'll take Archimedes over the MythBusters any old day of the week. You guys are so full of it. There is no such thing as the Archimedes. We all have to do our own show with the Archimedean death ray. Yeah. Well, and and I don't even and I don't have to just do that. I and mean, uh, you know the the you know the Chinese had this you know fusillade of rocket-propelled spears that would just it would just launch hundreds of spears through the air with explosives on them, just willy-nilly into a city. You know. Okay, but I'll, I'll point out, David. He he didn't say bring back medieval weaponry. He said swords and shields. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I feel like I, I do when people who are an, against gun control say that every time there's a school shooting, people who are against gun control will say, well, if he, he if there were no guns, he would just use a knife. Yeah. I'd like to see somebody kill 25 people with a knife. Ooh, I can. Well, no, it wasn't 25 people. It was 11. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, it's the same point. You're going to kill a whole lot fewer people. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, skip ahead to the end of the 20th century now that I've outed myself as pro-gun control. If that offends any of our listeners, I don't particularly care. Uh, and, and those of you who are against gun control, 
I like firearms, so you can still listen. Hey, we're a diverse <laughs> show. We celebrate <laughs> diversity here. We 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 reach across the aisle, so you can still you can still listen. Cause... We have gun nuts and rational people on the show. It's true. <laughs> oh, God. I'm just kidding, Dan. Uh, I'm just kidding. Nah. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Uh, let, let's skip ahead to the end of the 20th century. Um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, it seems to me that nationalism cooled down, um, at least a little bit. I mean, when you're the only superpower and you don't have somebody to define yourself against in a Manichaean sense, you're not going to be as gung-ho. Um, but then um, the, the attacks of September 11, 2001 happened, and... Uh, all of a sudden, nationalism really started back up in a very loud way. David, what did a 9-11 do to the U.S.'s conception of itself? And more importantly, did you buy a miniature American flag for your car? Uh, no, I didn't <laughs> buy a flag uh, because I would consider that a violation of the U.S. code regarding flags, which says that flags shouldn't be fastened, displayed, used, or stored in such a manner as to permit it to be easily torn, soiled, or damaged in any way. And you can't wear it as a article of clothing, too, by the way, you folks with the American flag t-shirts and your country music hats. Yeah. Also, you're not supposed to have the American flag on napkins. Um, uh, apparently, the, the U.S. law does not ban the burning of it, burning of flags, but it does ban wiping your dirty face with it. What about toilet paper? <laughs> um, Is yes. that free expression? No, it's not free expression. Just burning. Um, anyway, enough about flag stuff. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, let's be a talk about scout. flag staff. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a boy scout when I was a kid. So I basically learned the things that boy scouts were supposed to do, but never actually became one. So, you know, I knew the flag code stuff. You, you anyway. were the Ronin of the boy scouts. Yes. Yes. I was alone. Well, in, in, <laughs> in, in Wiccan terminology, I was a lone practitioner. Um, <laughs> David Grubbs is a Wiccan. He said it. It's official. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's what 9 I 9-11. Uh, 9-11. It's, it's hard to talk about this without without taking a particular stance, and I think listeners already know kind of where I'm coming from. Um, but I think a couple of things that I can say about it, you know, without, without you know, putting particular pers- political spins on it. One – it showed us how vulnerable the United States is uh, in its infrastructure, in its finances, uh, in its you know government and national defense and all those kinds of things. And vulnerability is uh, – w- when, when vulnerabilities are exposed at whatever level it is in your life, you circle the wagons. Um, you know, it's like when you start getting the symptoms for a cold. You go and you buy cold medicine and you and you stock up on your Kleenex and so forth and so on. You know, when bad stuff starts happening to your family, families circle the wagons and cousins who have never who haven't talked in years, they start talking because grandma's grandma's not doing well. And so forth and so on. And I think nine eleven did that. Um but I think um bringing up the Cold War I think was useful, Michael, because I think in, during the Cold War Americans generally had the notion that people in Russia really wish they could be Americans, but their mean government prevented it. Mm. Yeah, there was this idea that America is the place where there is freedom, and in those other places, they're ruled by tyrants, but the people would like freedom, American-style freedom. Right, which Um, is why the Berlin Wall was such a central symbol of it. 
that was the dialogue around the first Iraq war as well. The sol- right. the, uh, you, you hear about the soldiers putting their guns down and surrendering immediately. Right. So I think one thing that happened at 9-11 was that someone other than a tyrant uh, is that we learned that someone other than, you know, some kind of tyrannical politician in control of, you know, something like Soviet Russia could think that America's constituting ideas aren't the best model for a society. Um, Yes, bin Laden named specific American foreign policies he didn't like. But al-Qaeda also has specific social and governmental policies that they aim to implement. Now, America was founded, mid, was founded with an enlightenment notion, no, enlightenment notion that what's good for humans generically is what's good for Americans and vice versa. That, you know, this is – it was founded with the idea that the American constitution is, is supposed to be a kind of – a human kind of thing. And I think a lot of Americans kind of worked with that assumption, and 9-11 contested it and basically said that, you know, actually there are humans who don't want American-style freedom. Imagine that. And who don't want um, America's uh, America's notion of what's good for humans generically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the conservative reaction to 9-11 specifically has been to double down on Americanness as a good thing. <laughs> Um, but that, I, I don't think that's been the, the universal reaction, but I'm, you know, I'm, I think that's, that's how I would in a, in a, uh, in a nutshell, ex, you know, kind of describe the, the conservative reaction to nine eleven, doubling down on Americanness as, as good. I, and I think, I think largely that was the liberal reaction as well. I mean, not, not universally, certainly there were people on the left who, uh, took the opportunity to take stock of uh, America's policies and things like that. But certainly if you look at the politicians, it was America good, America good, America good. Mm-hmm. Right, Interestingly, right. by the way, you talk about us being vulnerable. In the State of the Union for 2002, Bush said, our country is stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's clearly not... <laughs> clearly ignoring important facts in order to put up this veneer of... Uh, of uh, American exceptionalism. On the other hand, do you want the president to get up in the State of the Union address after something like that and say, we're just as vulnerable as we were on 9-11? I don't want him to get up there, <laughs> scream, and run around in a circle. But I would – I mean, I, I understand I'm asking way too much for any president to to uh, put forth a realistic yeah. assessment of the country. But, yeah, I would, I would, like, I would like them to be realistic. Well, well, but frankly, and, I don't think that's a president's job. You know, yeah. I think that's the job of the press, mm-hmm. which they failed at, frankly. But, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. I, well, it's, you know, it's awfully it's awfully hard for one political leader to say everything that needs to be said to everyone in the same speech. Right, right. That's why he needs to say what needs to be said to me, Michael Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nathan, the uh, the rise of the Tea Party has brought nationalism and even to an even greater focus. They're not exclusively a nationalist organization, but it is certainly part of their uh, image, if not their actual platform. What do you think the future of American nationalism uh, is in uh, in the Tea Party or any other political party? Well, I mean, first of all, with regards to the Tea Party, you know, I I remember uh, having conversations with my brother, and I'm pretty sure I had it with other people. I can't remember if I talked with you two or not, about how 
you know, at the end of the Bush presidency in that sort of lame duck period after 2006, uh, the sort of conservative talking heads and the conservative blogosphere really started to cannibalize George W. Bush in a way that I found a little bit disturbing. Mm. You know, after six years where, you know, the mentality was, I mean, to borrow Michael's phrases from earlier, a little bit Manichaean, where if you even acknowledge that Bush might have been misguided, not even wrong, but, you know, if he might have been a little bit too extreme or a little bit this or a little bit that, then you were, in essence, giving aid and comfort to the Democrats. You know, or after to Al-Qaeda. That, or to <laughs> Al-Qaeda, although within those circles, it was generally the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but after 2006, after that big congressional loss, all of a sudden he wasn't conservative enough. He was really, you know, just a liberal in disguise. He ran to the right, but he governed to the left. And, you know, I saw that happen with the first Bush back in 1992, but not nearly as quickly. I didn't think anyway, you know, it might just been, I wasn't as aware back then. Uh, so, I mean, you know, when that spirit, you know, sort of transformed itself over those years between 2006 and 2009 into a, you know, whether you want to call it a, a grassroots or an astroturf organization, either way you paint it, I mean, it is a, a different sort of political phenomenon from the AM radio led Republican Party of the 80s and 90s, uh, and really of the Bush years too. You know, I mean, it's something that is uh, really sort of self perpetuating from the internet. Uh, you have figureheads like Ron Paul and Sarah Palin. But there is no clear leader the way that, you know, for instance, a Rush Limbaugh or someone like that was the voice of the Republican Party during the Clinton years. Yeah, they are just figureheads. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, one of the things about, you know, that sort of right wing nationalism is that it has become, you know, really more genuinely populist. Uh, Now, you know, as far as, you know, is there a a leftist nationalism, I would say there's a lot less of that. And the reason I would say so is because, first of all, I think that there hasn't been much of an American left since Bill Clinton took power. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when he took power, you know, all of a sudden to be liberal meant to be pro-NAFTA, but you're all right with all kinds of sex. And, you know, (laughs) that, that sort of workers left that I think of when I think of the left really sort of evaporated. And frankly, you know, that's that's sort of the Obama left, too. You know, uh, it is still an insult in mainstream political discourse to say that you're not pro-business, which, by the way, I'm not. You know, I, 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 I prefer it. Well, and, and here's what I prefer. I prefer a sort of Congress of Vienna balance of powers between the corporations and the unions. Yep. I think that when one of them evaporates, the other one starts to abuse power in some pretty nasty ways. Nathan and but I have rate, pretty similar political views, I, I assume. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, you know, I think that the future of nationalism is going to be more of a diffuse thing. Uh, I think that, you know, some people say that the, that the country is becoming more and more polarized. I don't see that, frankly. I see the country becoming more and more fragmented where you don't mm-hmm. just have two poles right and left, but you have the yes. super capitalists who hate everyone else. You have the neoconservative, you know, 
Woodrow Wilson take democracy to the world people who hate everyone else. You have what's left of the workers left who hate everyone else. You have the sexual libertines who hate everyone else. You have the crunchy conservatives who hate everyone else. And, you know, I think that all of them would make a case without crossing their fingers that they are the real Americans. And, you know, I think that that is really the shape of the future of nationalism. Uh, David, I, I'm, I'm probably going nuts again, but I heard you say yes, which we're, we're agreeing way too much this episode, David. Well, I, I was agreeing with your with your description of fragmentation and not polarization. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's useful at all to talk about um, to to talk about the American current the current American political scene as being as being bipolar, um, and that and honestly, you know, not not to not to resurrect uh, too many. Di- well, let, let's 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 just say that uh, that automatically both parties are too quick to jump on specific events and say and this is typical of that other side right right but there are too many and I, different and I, and sides I, right. <laughs> there's not just two and, I, sides and i'll raise you, i'll raise you one david and say that just about every one of those fragments i just named has, has at some point said both of the, the big parties are basically the same because they're not us yes yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, go hey, ahead, hey, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. Every it, it, it's kind of hilarious when you've got like, you know, like three or four duff, dozen little Manichaean groups who polarize the world between themselves and everyone else. So yeah, maybe sure. it's polarized in that sense, but <laughs> it's a whole lot oh, of multipolar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy looking Venn diagram. Um, yes. But yeah, I, I think that is that is what's going to happen, especially as uh, I think more people get. Uh, it's it, it seems to me that we've we've seen a really kind of interesting phenomena rise up with the internet, which is the the idea of people who are deeply and intensely committed to very specific political policies, and they become mm-hmm. wonks on that one subject, and that's like the big thing for them, and. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's just because, you know, I've always, you know, maybe, maybe it's just because like, you know, in, in, in recent years, I paid more attention, but I don't think before the internet, these kinds of subcultures fixated on, you know, well, like the fair tax people, right. Who for them, the, the only question that's important is that one. Or the, right. I mean, the classic example is the abortion people. Right, right. I yeah, mean, yeah. the Republicans could say, we are going to kill every man, woman, and child in America, but Except we're not going to let you... the unborn ones. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and there are people who would vote for them. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm anti-abortion, but I recognize, number one, the Republicans ain't going to do nothing about it ever because it wins them votes. And num- number two, th- there are other issues that that is an important issue and i would love i would love to see ab- abortion outlawed but it's not the only issue and the republicans i don't think are really all that interested in doing anything about it well not all of them anyway not enough of them to actually get it done yeah yeah but you know that that's what that's what happens when you have representative government you don't have one person who decides what gets done well uh, uh <laughs> we're we're running out of time here, so let's do the takeaway and let's do it fairly quickly if we can. We've talked about the history of nation- nationalism, and I think 
all three of us can agree that it's not really about to disappear. But how should we respond to nationalism as Christians? What uh, what are the dangers of it uh, in the 21st century? And uh, here's a fun question. How should we react when some people on the right, <coughs> Mormons, uh, suggest that the Constitution is an inspired and an errant document the way that the Bible is? <laughs> that, that's a lot to chew on, and we don't have a whole lot of time left, so do what you can, and uh, maybe we'll answer some more when people get angry at me. <laughs> So who who are you tossing this to? Oh, let's start with you, David. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. The Mormon thing. Um, I, I'm I'm gonna take that one. Uh, Thank I you. don't I don't know of anyone on the right who says that the Constitution is infallible and inspired, including the Mormons. Uh, that's often said of Mormons. Uh, what you actually do find, if you look up, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, chapter 101, verse 80. It's a long book uh, in which it says that God has basically raised up the land, um, talking about America, and that uh, that God established a constitution by the hands of wise men who God raised up for the purpose. And so what Mormon scripture actually says is that the Constitution of the United States, not that it's infallible and inspired, but that it was sovereignly established. So as a Calvinist who thinks that everything that happened is sovereignly done, <laughs> I don't know that I'm immediately going to disagree with them. But of course, they, they invest that with more with more importance. Um, but I, I right, would. But with a more particular election than perhaps you would. No. Well, yes, with with a more particular kind, um, right? It, with, but, with a more Israel flavored election than you would. Yes, but for people okay. who are who are interested in the subject, I would turn them to uh, an article in the Latter Day Saint Ma uh, Church magazine, Ensign, or or Ensign. I don't know what, like on, you know, the Enterprise or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, entitled "The Divinely Inspired Constitution." in which uh, a, a Mormon uh, elder from the Quorum of the Twelve, it's basically the Twelve Apostles of the Mormon Church, this is as, as high up as you get without being the Mormon prophet, lays out precisely what they mean when they say the Constitution is inspired. And what they, basically what he means, uh, what they mean is that uh, the notion of a separation and division of powers, a written bill of rights, and the idea of popular sovereignty are ideas from God that are enshrined in the American Constitution. But that uh, – the not that the particular words or that all of the particular policies in the Constitution are inspired, but those particular things, the Mormons say, yeah, that's those are God ideas. I, I don't know, David. I think um... – I think the the dialogue on the right about the Constitution in the last six months or so has, if they haven't come outright and said it's divinely inspired, the way they talk about it seems to get awful close, except, of course, the parts they don't want to read out loud in Congress. The parts that they don't want to read out loud in Congress, Michael, were the parts that got voted out through the Constitution's own means of amending itself. Yes, yes, but they don't want to <laughs> amend the Constitution more than they have to, so they won't admit outright that it's been amended. That's my problem with it. If you're going to read the Constitution, read the Constitution. Uh, except, except that they will. 
dude, I, I read an awful lot of conservative stuff. I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to pick a fight, but I read an awful lot of conservatives. I Bruce read Lindbergh. National Review. I read American Spectator. I read the the British Spectator. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not like I get all my news from the New Republic. Okay, okay. Or but from Mother the, Jones. I mean, you know, every, every conservative that I've ever read, and granted, I don't read Ron Paul, so sorry, Ron Paul guys, I don't read the only real conservative. Um, <laughs> that, anyway. Um, the only real but, American, David, the only real American. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> all of the ones that I've read said that, okay, the Constitution is is not a perfect document, but it's the document that establishes what the United States is. And it's it's the ground rules within which it makes sense to say what we're doing now is American politics. And Nathan, that's, I'm actually harking back to what you said about Creed. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> their, com their complaint... Their complaint about liberals is that they don't take the they, they want to know what the they don't want to know what the founders intended the Constitution to mean. They don't they don't uh, all, all this rhetoric about returning to the intentions of the founders. The point is we're not all that interested in the intentions of the founders, which is why we have all those amendments. They were wrong, <laughs> right? I mean. I'd, I nah, I I would disagree. And we, I, I mean, we can we can talk about how there's no such thing as quote the intentions of the founders, but mm -hmm. I, I I would I would just like them to admit that in, in some areas they're not terribly interested in the intentions of the founders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would yeah, well you know okay I, I I would say that the founders had specific ideas about that uh, well. You know, like the pre, you know, was it the preamble to the Bill of Rights, um, endowed by their creator with equal rights, and among these, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That is the Declaration of Independence. Is that Declaration of Independence? It sure okay. is. I don't have them sitting in front of me. Yeah, and God no... doesn't show up in the American Constitution. Anyway, whatever, whatever it is, if you take those kind of those basic ideas, yes, the founders and our nation as a whole has failed to live up to those ideas. But it doesn't mean that those ideas are bad. And I think that, you know, that it's perfectly valid for a generation to say, you know what, our forefathers, they had these guys, they had these good ideas, these good ideals, but they failed to live up to them in these specific ways. So let's, let's shore up the law against that. Anyway. And then, but then you've got to pick which ideals you're going to talk about. Well, yeah. We should True we death. should have a show on the American Constitution at some point because uh, I know that you and I could argue about this for another hour. <laughs> yeah, so let's not. <laughs> I mean, I, I do want to make it clear. I am completely in favor of reading the Constitution at, at, before each session of Congress, uh, before you know, each after each election. I'm fine with that. I think that's a great idea. But if you're going to do it, do it. Don't don't wuss out and only read the parts that are uh, acceptable. Well, and only read the parts that are actually still part of the Constitution. Leaving out that other stuff su su suggests that it was never there, and and it was. I mean, it is important because because we are talking about we don't agree with the intentions of the founders, yeah. which is their rhetoric. Well, well, that but that depends on whether you're reading it as a historical document or reading it as the basis of law. Those things that were voted out are no longer the basis of American law. Then let's stop talking about the intentions of the founders. 
But because if you're going to do that without getting historical, without making it a historical document, I, I don't know what that's going to look like. But again, we should just do a different show in the Constitution. <laughs> David, oh, yeah. this is why you hate our political shows, I know. Yes. Yeah. Not, not, not really a fan. But That's okay. That's I always walk away from them feeling like I'm uh, so far over on the left, I can't stand up. But uh... <laughs> no, I'm not, not by the way, for anybody listening. I'm not particularly yeah. liberal. Oh, and by the way, liberals... Note this. Not liberals. Listeners. Note this, listeners. <laughs> also liberals. <laughs> also Pay attention. Lib also liberals. Also conservatives. Note this. This conversation is actually happening. We have genuine difference, and we are having this conversation. Uh, and it, the, the American political conversation should not simply consist of people having speeches past each other. So I'm going to mm -hmm. leave it there. Anyway. All right, well, now we each have 15 seconds to say how we should uh, respond <laughs> to nationalism. Yeah. Uh, David? Uh, yeah. Just that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's all well and good to be patriotic, but keep your head on. Okay. Nathan? <laughs> Uh, I would say that we Christians should be the most ardent nationalists among the human race. Uh, we should be willing to die for our nation, and we should tell everyone about the greatness of our nation, and we ought to remember <laughs> our nation is a heavenly one. Yeah. Michael. Except, uh, of course, Nathan is talking about uh, our citizenship in, uh, in, the Christian, in the Christian world, not in, not in the political world. Yeah, Those I saw years, that. Those with ears, let them hear. Yeah, I saw I saw where that was going. <laughs> I, I, I will say quickly that I think uh, something C.S. Lewis says in The Four Loves is important. He says, you should love your, your location, your home. You should love it unequivocally. You should love it even when it does bad things. You should not pretend it doesn't do bad things. And then you should uh, recognize that everybody else loves their home in the exact same way. Yeah. I think that is a very important thing to remember. Yeah. All right. Well, David, what's uh, what's going on next week? And more importantly, are you and I going to scream at each other again? Um, I don't think so. I mean, you may want to scream at me, but but actually, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about Flannery O'Connor. So so uh, you should you should be nice to me. Um, so uh, upcoming show was talking to my wife and sub you know we proceed from subject to subject and we got on to that uh that perennial and i believe even classical debate where which is better the country or the city not country as in nation but as in like you know out there in the country all right so next episode we're going to be talking about town and country the ideas of rurality and urbanity and you know the ways that crops up in literature and religion and all that fun stuff in the meantime, you can uh, visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org, and you can go from there to our podcast page or our blog page. You can email us, as I said before, at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, I am worried about the sort of email we're going to get. Please be gentle with me. <laughs> and, and in, or until, me, frankly. <laughs> until, uh, and Nathan's fine. Uh, until, until next week, this is Michael Farmer. What's that? I said it's kind of odd that I've been the least offensive this episode. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a real switch up. <laughs> and, until next week, this is Michael Farmer for David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.